Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. This is Jenny Wise, joined, as always, by co-host Sam Stern. Hi, Jenny. Calling in from California, our colleague, principal analyst, Ryan Hart. Hey, Ryan. Hi, everyone. Both Sam and Ryan recently published a report and will go over some of the findings with us to answer this question. How can you apply behavioral science concepts to transform CX and design better experiences? Right. Thank you, Jenny. So the genesis of this report is that we're starting to see behavioral economics or behavioral science more broadly being applied not only in the marketing space, but now more and more in the customer experience space. And so drawing from Daniel Kahneman and, and a lot of really good uh, research by Richard Thaler and all these uh, you know academics before us, looking at some of those concepts about how you might be able to proactively design experiences in a way that will better your customer's future self in parallel with deriving benefit for the organization. And so we're starting to see more companies now applying elements of behavioral science or even uh, instituting behavioral science practices, hiring behavioral scientists into more formal roles, and really adding some scientific structure around designing experiences in what otherwise is is sometimes a very touchy-feely space. We zeroed in on, on really five behavioral science principles that I felt are uniquely applicable to customer experience design. And I think if you look on, you know, the Wikipedia page for behavioral sciences mm-hmm. or behavioral economics, there's dozens of different techniques. Often some are sort of, you know, subsets of, of larger techniques. Mm-hmm. But as Ryan said, these are the ones that seem to really have the most applicability to designing in a positive way experiences that would be conscious of these human sort of behavioral tendencies and help the humans involved, the customers, not be sort of hamstrung by them, but, but actually get to better outcomes that they would want based on your understanding of an application of these behavioral science ideas. And so before we dive into what some of those ones are by name, you both said something that I'm interested in asking a follow-up for. So we're talking about how to apply these in a way that's helping the customer experience. And you said you've seen examples of this being used. Where in the organization is this being used? Is this something that CX teams are beginning to employ? Was this research written for a variety of different roles in the organization because everyone could benefit from them? Yeah. I mean, Ryan, I think you had a you had a great example that I, I don't think we actually got to put it into the report. This goes way back to the early days of advertising and mm-hmm. marketing, the understanding, even if not in name, of the tendency of people to be taken in by limited time offers mm-hmm. and discounts, you know, even if it's the same amount of money that the price that's a sale price, right. you know, is more appealing than the same price, just a low everyday price. That that we are susceptible to these types of things. But we were writing, I think this is fair, right, Ryan, that we were writing for the CX team and maybe their design colleagues because we thought they could bring the right intention to using these techniques to really try to better the outcomes for the customers rather than trick them into conversion. Right. So it's mutually beneficial for both the company and then the end customer as well. Yes. And I know our colleagues in our marketing research teams would call foul on me for characterizing it that way. And I'm not saying that they're enlightened marketers, modern marketers still do that. But that's where we thought for CX professionals, this was something that they could actually maybe, maybe they were reticent to apply because they have been used to trick customers a lot. And we wanted them to say, no, you can actually use these techniques for good. Here's how, and here's why you need to step in 
because so many other people in the world out there are using them for ill. And mm -hmm. you can sort of push back against that by highlighting how these can be used for good, for, for bettering customer outcomes, not for tricking customers. It's a good call to action there. Yes, like we hope. We hope. So then you mentioned that there were five concepts. What are they? They're relatively well known. We talk about framing, basically framing a proposition in a way that highlights the benefits or highlights, it puts it in a positive light. We have anchoring, which is about anchoring on a specific number or benchmark that then all other elements of the proposition then can be compared to in the customer's mind. We talk about default settings, using defaults to set the course for a better future self for the customer or the user in the digital space. We talk about loss aversion, which is essentially if I were to lose $20, it's much more negatively impactful to me emotionally than if I was to find $20. Mm -hmm. So that's loss aversion. Uh, and then the last one is the endowment effect. And the endowment effect speaks to if you put your own effort into something, then there's more of a sense of ownership or a sense of positive pride or emotional value attached to it. I've heard of all of those except the endowment effect, actually. Yeah, I think there's there's some great studies that economics professors have done. Dan Ariely, you know, the predictably irrational guy and a Duke professor did a study at the Duke basketball line for tickets. They have mm -hmm. a famously small arena for their very good college basketball team. So tickets are given out by lottery. And they found that students who had won the lottery were willing to sell their tickets for $2,400 as the average price. And the average non-winner of the lottery was only willing to pay $170. And so by winning the lottery, you suddenly valued that ticket at you know, 12, 15 times the amount that someone who didn't win the lottery valued it as only because you had won and it was now yours. So it's like yeah. that endowment effect. The other one he cites is the uh, what Ryan was talking about the, with the effort, the Ikea effect. You actually like a piece of furniture better from Ikea because you put it together than if you bought it already assembled because you did the work. So either you did the work or you feel a sense of ownership over the item, you will value it more than before you own it or if you don't do any work for right. it. So your involvement in owning it or creating yes. it attaches an added value. Gives more meaning to it, yes. So how I refinished this really ugly table that looks terrible, but I spent hours and hours and hours painting it, so I want to sell it for $1,000. That's right. <laughs> Even though and, it's worth And me 50. looking at it as maybe nice table, but nothing special, yeah. would not give you anywhere near what you would need to sell the table to me. You know, a lot of people will probably that are familiar with behavioral economics or behavioral science will probably hear these and say, where is that applicable to customer experience? And I think that was kind of our main challenge when we embarked on this research was really finding the link between how you can use these behavioral economic principles, as Sam highlighted, for good in a way that will benefit the customer's future self and confer benefit to the organization as well. And so we actually divided these principles into pragmatic guidance around how you can apply a hack, which is a solution focused on a short-term outcome. When we say hacks are modest, like guerrilla tactics that companies or CX professionals can employ in the short term, often with limited resources to change customers' behaviors. And that might just be something as simple as reframing how you are communicating with the customer or doing something very simple, fixes and tweaks to improve the experience. Second way we applied each of these principles is about harnessing them. How can you harness it in a broader, more strategic approach to drive long-term behavioral changes, such as helping people people save more for retirement or how can you get them to stop smoking? That would be harnessing behavioral science principles. 
So there are two ways to do it. There is a short term, easy to do. Now that we know what this concept is, let's apply it for good in an effective way. And then harness is using it more for a long term goal. Would you say that's fair? Either applying it to long term behavior change or a larger sort of messaging strategy even for your company? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the hack way is often to be aware of the technique and try and minimize the damage that customers might do to themselves based on it uh, or your role in that damage happening. The one from anchoring, I think is interesting where, you know, we use the example of a hack. There was Apple's use of showing you how long the estimated wait times in different ways of getting service from them. You can Mm -hmm. chat with us. It's going to be six minutes. You can go to a store, but the next available appointment in your area is, you know, next week, or you can call us and it's 10 minutes to sort of help people say, oh, okay, six minutes isn't that long. I'll I'll wait on chat, right? It sort of anchors them to, actually, that's not so bad. I, I feel better about this and I get help faster because I'm not waiting. Whereas Harness, the example we used was from energy utilities where they are using your um, sort of norm seeking behavior, right? Looking at how does my energy usage compare to my neighbors to get you into more conservative use of your energy, right? To Mm -hmm. better conserve. And this is showing you that you're burning more energy compared to your neighbors if you are and not necessarily showing you if you're burning less because if you burn less, it actually gives you permission. You burn more. They've shown that effect. So that's sort of a longer term play rather than just a quick short term thing. It's it's actually a substantive change to a behavior rather than sort of a one-off quick right. fix. So I'm curious to hear the example from framing. And I say this because I think that is one <laughs> that has traditionally gotten a bad rap when used by marketing or whatever role it is <laughs> to present something, you know, in a way that seems really appealing and is really just going to try to get people to buy more, whether or not it is good for that person. What example did you find here where it's actually helping not just the business, but also the customer have a better experience or achieve a better outcome? Just for people that might not be familiar with framing, it's really we're presenting in choices in a positive approachable language. It's really studies have found that people prefer a steak that's labeled 75% lean as opposed to a steak that's labeled 25% fat. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're framing it in a way that gets people to buy it or to like a product more. That's really from the perspective of marketing. But if you were to take it from the perspective of a customer experience professional, how can we somehow frame or nudge as Richard Taylor talks about, nudging a customer to do something that they actually want to do, um, but it's actually just helping them guide them in a certain direction. So, you know, Fitbit Alta, for example, uses very playful language to get people to motivate them to get up and start walking by saying, feed me steps. Or I I use an example uh, in the report talking about Virgin Active, which is the fitness gyms. They talk about how there's a unisex sauna in one of their uh, gyms in Singapore, for example. And I I remember seeing the sign. It was quite funny. It says, you know, make sure that you always wear more than a smile at all times, as opposed to saying something like, you know, always wear your towel. It's just kind of a playful language to kind of nudge customers or framing uh, kind of directive uh, in a very playful way to improve the customer's experience. Um, And then I think we give them examples of how Nespresso is an example of a company that successfully framed their entire proposition around coffee, not as we're just selling you coffee, but we're selling you a new home coffee experience. Yeah, those are great examples. So when I'm thinking then about these nudges, right, and how you make sure that they're positive for the customer, not just for the company. I think that it looks like what you have to do is understand what is that customer's goal and is the information that we provide through framing, is that, you know, messaging that you just spoke to going to resonate with our customer and the goal that they're trying to create and that there have to be these 
sort of checks and balances against yeah. each of these tactics to make sure that it is helping the customer or helping them achieve a goal. Is that something that you found in this research? Are there certain specific customer outcomes or research or knowledge that companies need to have before employing these? Yeah, absolutely. I think you said it very well in asking that question. This has to be customer research, customer insight driven. With that said, the caveat I'll offer is I think this, as much as anything in customer experience, can't just be driven by what customers tell you or what they do in the moment. And I think sometimes use of behavioral nudges are guilty of taking customers at their revealed preferences as if that's all they care about. So to say, well, hey, here at McDonald's, we put salads on the menu. If you still order the Big Mac, well, then that's your revealed preference and you don't actually want to be healthy. That's not true. That is so limited in its application of how you understand what the customer is trying to achieve and how difficult it is for them to align their short-term decisions and their short-term interests with their long-term goals and aspirations. And that's where I think there's real opportunity here with bringing behavioral sciences thinking is how do we, one, balance between what customers tell us and the revealed preferences, but also how do we help them better align with their long-term goals? People want to secure their retirement, but struggle when the default is you're not enrolled in a 401k or you're not enrolled at a high enough savings rate to save enough for retirement. So I think we can say as a society that we have our employees' permission to change the default. We're not saying you have to enroll in a 401k. We're saying that if you do nothing, you are enrolled in the lowest cost plan at the full match that the employer will pay. That is a utility maximizing default that makes society better off. That's the kind of behavioral science design decision that gets made if you are not taking customers at the revealed preference of, well, I do nothing, so I don't care about my retirement, but their stated preference that they told you in research about, I want to secure my retirement and get the full amount of money from my employer, which you don't really even need to do research to to know that that's an important goal for them. So that's where I think there's a lot of value in here is trying to balance that trade-off between what customers say and what they do and not just thinking that what they do is more authentic or true to who they are, what they want from you. It also sounds like some of these has to be employed, which you just alluded to, to make things easier. Yeah. So by providing me more information like that anchoring concept, it helps me make the best decision. So thinking about McDonald's, if you go to a state where they have... the calories of every decision, right? When you're there, you're able to anchor and understand the sort of implication of each of the decisions that you make, right? And that helps remove some decision stress of trying to think of it off the top of your head in the moment, similar to pre-selecting the choice that they want to do for their savings. One of my favorite examples of this that we had in the report was from Betterment Financial Advisor, where they would actually bring forward when you were about to execute a trade that would have tax sort of penalty loss implications next year. They would bring forward before you could execute the trade, the expected, forecasted, predicted tax loss for next year. And this was a great example of harnessing loss aversion. Like, oh, I don't want to lose that money next year to get them to do the better long-term thing, not panic trade when the market's down, but hold on to the investment, ride it out and not have the tax loss next year and using the tax loss to give them, as you said, the information, expose the information at the time when it's still useful mm-hmm. before they've executed the trade. I think that was actually to me, <laughs> Ryan, you, you brought this idea to me for the research. That was the number one idea in my head I wanted to get across to our readers was there's ways to take something like loss aversion, which usually leads to bad sort of short-term behavior and turn it around and have it work Mm -hmm. for a long-term objective that the customer might have. In the final section, we sort of talk about rules for nudging responsibly. Jenny, to your point, your skepticism, we we wanted to highlight for people, you know, maybe a code of conduct for doing this well. I will say as a uh, sci-fi nerd admitted, I was inspired by Isaac Asimov's three and then four laws for robots from his uh, 
robot <laughs> series of books. The first law we, we sort of came up with or, you know, rule was the customer has proactively requested a nudge. You can feel quite confident that you are on the good side of nudging. The sort of jokey example we used was that no alarm clock manufacturer is ever worried that their alarm clock is too persistent in trying to wake you up, right? Mm, you literally mm-hmm. set the nudge to happen right. to wake you up. So we're good. The second one, the customer would appreciate the intervention if made aware of it. Great example here from 12 years ago, roughly. McDonald's stopped proactively asking customers if they wanted to supersize their meal. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask customers, they probably do want more fries for like no money. Yeah. But if you ask them if they were glad to have saved all those calories, they would be happy with that on balance. Doesn't that go against McDonald's interest? This is a great example of where sometimes you have to forego short-term profits mm-hmm. for long-term healthy relationship with your customers, literally healthy, healthier at least in this mm-hmm. case. The third one is the short-term impulses aligned with long-term goals or aspirations. Great example of this is where the 401k default was changed to default enrolled. Target date fund default full match from the employer. That is a, you know, in the short term, I want more money. In the long term, I want to have secured my retirement. So we're aligning what your short-term aspirations are. Also laziness to do nothing (laughs) with the default with your long-term goals. And then the last one I'll mention very quickly, and this one is problematic, I will admit. It makes society better. And it's problematic because I think, you know, there's exceptions there that you could drive a truck through to do what you want. But back to our McDonald's example, if you are making society healthier, Mm -hmm. right? If you are reducing the likelihood of people smoking or you're helping them get more exercise. Or think about it, Sam. I mean, the the example about default when you're driving. So Apple introduced the default driving mode when you're to say, uh, I'm sorry, I I can't take the call or the message because I'm driving. Yeah, exactly. That's a great example. If you are making society as a whole better off through the nudge, then I think you can be more open to being on the right side of things, even if the consumer, the customer, in the very narrow use case is annoyed that they didn't know the call came through, right? In that Apple case that Ryan just gave. So I would be careful about that because I think you can often exploit that to do what you want. But in general, if we're making society better off with our design, that's a net positive, obviously. That was a great and quick summary of how to apply these five behavioral economic concepts to better customer experiences. And then also what I find especially important is how to use them for good. So listeners, if you're interested in learning more, we'll provide a link to the report in the show notes. The report is titled Guide Your Customers to Better Experiences with Behavioral Science. Bye for now. Glad you could join us for this week's episode of CX Cast. If you want to learn more about this week's topic, check out the notes section of the episode for some links to relevant research. And as always, you can email us at cxcast at forester.com with any questions or topic ideas for future episodes. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality.